mandatory redistribution party you're about to hear me interview grace blakely grace is one of the british left's most prominent commentators her book stolen explains how and why the benefits of this so-called recovery since the financial crisis have gone to the one percent while the rest of us are just ground into asbestos by the capitalist machine and how democratic socialism can save us from a new crash and climate catastrophe chapter seven of the book where grace moves from an analysis of things as they are to how they could be starts with a great quote from Thomas Sankara, the revolutionary leader of Burkina Faso. You cannot carry out fundamental change without a certain amount of madness. In this case, it comes from non-conformity, the courage to turn your back on the old formulas, the courage to invent the future. I'm partly putting that quote here because I'll take any excuse to make people aware of Thomas Sankara. Check him out. But also because Grace mentions it in a minute and like, this was the most efficient way I could edit it to give that some context. Right, intro done, main content incoming, stick this in your uh, electronic cigarette and let it fill your lungs and every crevice of your brain. Hello Grace, how's it going? Really good, thank you. How are you? I'm brilliant. Thanks good. very much for uh, coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I really love the book. It's really great. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Um, I reread the conclusion before I did this to get myself pumped up. To get up. you riled up. Really the conclusion is a bit of a kind of like call to action, It I really guess. is. Like yeah. wall to wall. That last paragraph, I mean, spoilers. Um, it's, this is like, <laughs> you know, Voldemort is, is being revealed or whatever. Um, oh God, I've made a Harry Potter reference. I've just alienated the entire like fan yeah. base of this. potential. Anyway, sorry guys. Um, the crossroads between extinction and utopia. That paragraph, absolute banger. Oh, I'm so um, glad you liked that one. That yeah. was actually one of my favourite bits. I tweeted it before I like took a picture of it and was like this is the end of my book go out and buy it <laughs> yeah it made me want to go out and uh, smash things man a barricade yeah just get on, but there's no barricades no I mean um, then Extinction Rebellion will be around soon right oh, so you could coming. go and kind of like you know like yeah. cool like make them a little bit more socialist yeah 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 just kind of wander through like <laughs> putting on their dreadlocks like. <laughs> they're, they're white people's dreadlocks yeah of course um, uh, it's weird that you can man a barricade but you can't woman a barricade like oh man, God, so man is a, the patriarchy strikes again you should be able to person a barricade really. you should be able to person a barricade yeah. absolutely and that when the revolution comes we will we person will, yeah. barricades um well it leads into my first question right economics is astrology for men discuss love it <laughs> <laughs> well obviously the way economics works mm. 
in you know academic economics and in terms of like the commentariat is very much there is a very particular way of looking at the world we have this idea of like you know a rational utility maximizing human being he goes out and interacts he by the way because social reproduction doesn't count in this in this thing (laughs) he goes out and interacts with other human beings and this gives rise to a beautiful self-organizing system that we can model using complex mathematics to predict everything that will happen except (laughs) financial crises and recessions and any other kind of large significant economic event (laughs) i love that story about didn't the queen have some economist around in like 2008 and was like lads what what, why didn't you predict this and she and they were all just like shit (laughs) (laughs) we have no answer to this question (laughs) economics to me it seems even though it's apparently astrology for men even much like real astrology i don't i I often don't get it and i'm intimidated and confused by it (laughs) it's also one Um, of the things about like astrology right it's so vague mm -hmm. that you can read anything into it Yeah, yeah yeah right And you could say the same thing about a lot of like economics predictions Mm -hmm. or arguments for things. We need to reduce taxes because it will increase investment. Yeah. That could mean anything, right? (laughs) (laughs) Especially when you put on, look, there's a curve, the Laffer curve. Behold. Created, literally written initially on the back of a napkin. Really? Yes. Oh my God. I know. This guy was just like, look, this is what happens. It's literally, you're right, it's astrology. But, um, <laughs> but no, what I always say when people say like economics is stupid, I don't understand any of it, mm. but like I kind of vaguely like what you say, is that you only really need to understand two things mm-hmm. to understand an economics issue. One is who owns the stuff and the other one is who makes the rules, yeah. which is basically, yeah, as a socialist, just who owns everything, who tells us what to do. That's basically all that really matters. Yeah, that was, I mean, I'm going on a tangent here from the questions I had planned, but that was something I was really pleasantly surprised by in, in the book is that thing of like who owns the stuff and then who, like who, who controls it and who makes yeah. the rules. Often people, well, you actually say it in your book, you point out like Piketty and things like that saying, oh, let's just tax the rich yeah. more, but that addresses neither of those two yeah, main yeah, issues yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and a lot of the solutions you put forward were really right I mean they weren't like uh, nationalization without compensation but <laughs> they're, they're like genuinely like inspiringly radical a lot of the stuff that's written on the left is just like why everything is fucked rather mm. than here's why everything's fucked here's what we could plausibly do that you put forward such radical proposals mm. it's like amazing how did you get through PP at Oxford and keep like a functional brain? Like, why aren't you Ed Balls? <gasps> That's a really good question. Most of my, the book is dedicated to my granddad, right? Yeah, yeah. Who was a shop steward, communist of one form or another, uh-huh. but continuously kind of, you know, changing his mind throughout his life. Yeah. Um, and who even, th- I mean, he died when I was 14, but I wouldn't have been able to even kind of mm. speak to the rest of my family yeah. <laughs> with, you know, <laughs> if I hadn't. Uh, but I mean, even like, even with that coming out of PPE, mm. I don't think I would have described myself as a socialist at mm-hmm. the end of my PPE degree. I mean, I was like, Ed Miliband's shit and I'm going to go campaign for the Greens because yeah, austerity yeah. is terrible. But I still don't think I had that, the, the view of the, like the economy and politics that I have today. Mm-hmm. That all changed when I did my African studies masters. Right. Yeah. Because like you were, so the, the Sankara quote, yeah. right? Yeah. So you're looking at. I mean, I, I, I feel like to properly understand capitalism, you have to look at it from the bottom up. And when mm-hmm. you start looking at it from the bottom up, then mm-hmm. you start seeing how things actually work. Yeah, I kind of got to Marxism through like dependency theory, being right. like, right, so imperialism is what structures the world economy. What, uh, what explains that? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, then I was like, wow, it's all about capitalism. That was kind of my next question, really, is oh, how did cool. you get such a mastery of socialist thinking? And have you got any 
other tips for other people learning about this stuff? Because I, yeah, um, I watched you do a talk like on uh, Saturday and it was amazing. But when you were like fielding questions from the audience, they were basically about like every aspect of human existence <laughs> <laughs> and you were expected to have an answer and you did. Like, uh, like uh, what, where would people start though with getting that? Cause again, I think people can be intimidated yeah. with like the canon Oh you know? God, yeah. No, definitely don't start with the canon. Yeah. Like imagine just being like, well, if you want to understand socialism, just go and read, you know, volumes one, two and three of Capital oh, and God. you'll be fine. Definitely don't do that. I no. mean, do it eventually, right? Because yeah. it's fun. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I started with all the kind of pop Marxism. It was mm-hmm. after actually, so after I graduated from my master's, during that point, I got more into mainly like, you know, well, critical theory yep. and sociology and all that sort of yep. stuff. So, you know, you start out, you dip your toe in, you read a little bit of, you know, Foucault and you're yeah. like, oh, I wasn't taught this in my PPE degree. <laughs> I wonder what else I wasn't taught. And then you go even, you know, you go to the better stuff and then you get to the better stuff and then finally you get yeah. marks. And yeah, 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 um, yeah. I remember basically spending like a couple of years after I graduated just reading basically everything that like Verso mm. and other critical publishers yeah, put yeah, out. Yeah. And there are some really good books. Um, so like, you know, what, Inventing the Future was mm-hmm. great. I remember reading that one. I remember reading David Graeber's book, oh, Death. Yeah, yeah. And then a couple of other like, you know, and then you'd branch out from the things mm. referenced in, you know, all the new books. So yeah. I remember setting myself the challenge of reading E.P. Thompson's History of the English Working Class. (laughs) And that was brilliant. But it was so good. It was so good to read. Um, And yeah, I mean, then after like three years of reading random stuff, Mm -hmm. then I got onto Capital and I still haven't finished it. And basically I just listened to David Harvey's podcasts and read Mandel's introductions and (laughs) that's about it. Pro tips, pro (laughs) tips. Yeah, I think sometimes... um, People can be elitist on the left. Oh, 100%. Especially, yeah. like, often, especially like online men of mm. like, don't read Naomi Klein or Chomsky. They're like, they're actually just thinly veiled liberals, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. It's like, well, actually, no, it's a, there, there's a lot of good stuff in there and that can. Yeah, it's, it's a like, journey, right? Mm, it is like if you, if the book, if, if you've written a book and it doesn't try and explain everything that's ever <laughs> happened throughout human history through the lens of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, it's not real Marxism. <laughs> So let's get into the specifics of the book then. Great title, Stolen, uh, How to Save the World from Financialization. Um, now, presumably, like every interview you've done, someone's asked you to explain financialization. So I thought for a, for a change, yeah. I'll try and say what I got from, from your explanation. Oh, then, great. Okay, and then that you can, takes, takes some work off me. I like that. Exactly. And then you can just correct me for like the visceral thrill of the listener. If I get it wrong, they get to hear me get owned. So. <laughs> By a girl. <laughs> So finance is lending, investment, mortgages, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you've got, yeah, like banking on the one hand, which, you know, is a kind of structured around money creation, lending, you know, borrowing, et cetera. And then you have the rest of it, which is basically money management and capital management and that sort of Um, stuff. So that's finance. And then financialization is where that becomes like the dominant thing in the economy, right? Yeah. DFS don't want to sell you a sofa. They want to sell you like a five-year thing to pay it back. And it's the same with like car dealerships or whatever. Like they want, it's the financial product. Yeah. So if you think about banking and money management Mm. as broadly, you know, that's not the whole thing, but you know, you can kind of broadly understand a lot of what goes on in financial markets through those two lenses. And you've Mm. got the banks that are lending, you know, taking deposits, issuing various financial products, et cetera. Yeah. You know, big investment banks that are think, doing things like supporting IPOs, mm-hmm. doing mergers and acquisitions, et cetera. And then you have kind of asset management, which is 
con- basically controlling big pools of money yep. and then investing that in mm-hmm. different assets, right? Those two, um, what am I trying to say? Those two kind of big, <laughs> um, kind elements. of ways of understanding finance. Yeah, elements. Yeah. yeah, let's just say. Yeah, those two kind of elements uh, you can apply to lots of different other areas of economic activity. So like the lending and borrowing stuff, like yep. obviously you start to see many more aspects of of consumption, investment, et cetera, as defined by debt. Mm-hmm. So people are in more debt. Corporations are in more debt. When mm-hmm. you buy things, you may be buying it using debt. Mm-hmm. Um, debt becomes much more important in terms of the operation of the financial system because you have much more debt being created. Mm-hmm. It's being created in new ways. You can kind of create lots of different securities based on that debt, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, debt comes to play a much more important role Mm. in the economy as a whole. Uh, And you can kind of understand that as like, so David Harvey has this idea Mm. of, you know, like spatio-temporal fixes, right? Mm. So on the one hand, you have spatial fixes for Mm. capitalism where, you know, things stop working as well. So capitalism expands geographically. You can think of like, you know, the the increasing importance of debt in the economy under financialization as like a temporal fix, right? right? Because it extends, it's, it's, it's almost like capitalism extending itself through time. Yeah. Like extracting from the future, oh right? Rather than extracting the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> Time capitalism. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. And then the money management side of things is also really important because uh, the management of financial assets or, mm. you know, just assets in general becomes mm. much more important for businesses, households, the state, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Managing your pension fund, managing your your home, like, you know, yeah. releasing equity from your home to finance whatever. Personal financial management becomes mm. much more important. You might think... I feel much wealthier because my house has gone up in value and my mm-hmm. pension pot is really big, even if your wages haven't increased that much over mm-hmm. the last couple of years. That is quite a, a different way of understanding our own prosperity and our own economic situation because, mm-hmm. you know, you can join a union and bargain for yep. wage rises, but you can't really, like, go to your bank and <laughs> say, I'm, like, joining a, a union and going on strike. You can, actually. <laughs> there are there are now, yeah. um, there are now uh, groups that will do that, especially in the US, right. um, which is great. But, like, you know, that's emerged as a result of you know this model kind of developing Mm. and then breaking down that's kind of it debt money management just kind of changing the way that households work businesses work and the government works amazing so from what you said there then about how it's a bit harder to negotiate with your bank than your employer if you're in a union how is burdening households with debt like a means of control how does it reduce people's like freedom So on the one hand, there's the obvious thing that if you have lots of debt, Mm -hmm. it massively constrains your capacity to say, do something like go on strike or Mm -hmm. quit your job and try and find something else. Being locked into a structure of kind of debt repayments does massively limit your action. Mm -hmm. And you've seen that, you know, a lot recently with people kind of getting into debt spirals and then being shut off from credit from Mm -hmm. traditional banks and having to go in the payday lending sector and getting into this downward spiral of, say, having to pay more in interest payments than they Mm -hmm. can conceivably afford, leaving enough left over for them to survive. Yeah. Uh, So that can get into kind of quite um, dark territory for a lot of people. And we are seeing the rise, the massive rise of problem debt Mm -hmm. in the UK again, given that we've had a decade of wage stagnation. More broadly, the the focus on personal financial management, Mm. so the management of one's debt and one's assets, does take a bit of pressure off your work as a source of income, Mm -hmm. right? Because you have your, you know, your wage, which Mm -hmm. is income, but you also might have many other different forms of income in inverted commas, which actually represent a future claim on your earnings, Mm -hmm. um, but which will allow you potentially to live better now than Mm -hmm. you otherwise might have. 
and which, yeah, will make you less focused on your wage as what is determining whether or not you can afford to buy all the things you want to afford. So if you have got, as we have had, you know, a decade mm. of wage stagnation, um, but you have rising house prices, so, you know, mm. you have assets that are worth more and it's easy and cheap to get debt mm -hmm. as it has been since interest rates have been low for mm. most people, although yeah. those, yeah, <laughs> that doesn't get passed on to, you know, credit mm. cards and, and payday lending, et cetera. Wonka.com. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It, it takes the pressure off your employer, basically, to pay you, to pay you right. I think a lot of people now do understand that a lot of the social function of benefits is to subsidize the businesses that are paying poverty wages, mm. right? Uh, like the the thing that's called the living wage, which isn't a living wage, yeah. um, is, is like topped up by dog shit benefits, whatever <laughs> remains under the Tories. Uh, but then, yeah, I didn't really think of personal debt as having the same function, yeah. which is what, is that kind of what you're saying there? A little yeah, bit. Kind yeah, kind of. I mean, obviously yeah. it's not the same because it's not a giveaway. It's no, an extraction exactly, yeah. from the future, yeah. right? So, you know, it's always, it's <laughs> yeah, it's always premised upon the idea that you're yeah. going to carry on getting better off, right? Mm. If it's, you know, a mortgage, it's premised mm. on the idea that your house isn't going to fall in value. Yeah. If you're borrowing, say to go on holiday, mm. that's premised on the idea that you're going to earn more in the future that will allow you to pay that back. Mm. And when that stops happening, <laughs> um, then, you know, you get, you're in a pickle. Yeah, you're in a pickle. <laughs> <laughs> um, wicked. So the other aspect of the title is why stolen, to an extent, people's futures are being stolen from them for, for the profit of someone else. But why, why that uh, title? Our politics, mm -hmm. our economy, our society mm -hmm. is being increasingly controlled and run in the interests of a small financial elite. Now, that is generally true. Mm -hmm. under all capitalist systems, right? You know, even capitalist systems that are fairer and less extractive, um, the people who own the stuff and the people who make the rules are broadly the same. <laughs> but under financialization, you start to see greater levels of extraction and exploitation mm -hmm. from everyone else. The myth of capitalism is we need inequality, we need, you know, a small number of people to own the stuff because they'll invest the money that they have and create jobs and, you know, people couldn't possibly do that for themselves. So we've got to have these, you know, incredibly wise people who've inherited all their money do it for us. Um, and at some points mm -hmm. under uh, in the long history of capitalism, that has said something about how capitalism works. The people with the money have invested that and created jobs or invented things or yeah. whatever. Um, but for most of the history of capitalism, particularly before the, the Second World War in the UK and the US mm. and since the 1980s, that hasn't been the case. In mm. fact, it's been a small number of people using their economic and political control to exploit working people and to literally extract from them. Um, so you can think of kind of the exploitation as what happens in the production process, right? So mm. I pay you a wage less than what you deserve. Mm -hmm. But that's added to under conditions of financialization by this process of extraction, which is lending to you and then extracting more out of your earnings through interest payments. Mm -hmm. Or I own all the... Ha the homes and I get to charge you whatever rent I like. And that's another, you know, way in which we're extracting from uh, from the bottom up to the top, along with the m many ways in which political power and the state is used to keep working people down, extra extract from them, oppress mm. them, etc., in order to benefit a small elite at the very top. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose it's like it's theft, but understood in a very expansive sense and not just being like you know bad guys coming over and like pushing you over and taking your stuff <laughs> but actually like a system that's structured around the idea of extraction yeah mm. yeah yeah um oh i don't know where to go now you're like <laughs> one of the things i think that's um a bit of a problem in some leftist critiques mm. of like neoliberalism 
which I was worried about. I was worried about going in because you've got this amazing history in the book, a whole chapter about how financialization came mm. to be. And I was like, oh no, is this going to be the kind of um, uh, post-war consensus yeah, nostalgia piece, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It, right, so so post-war consensus, which was basically like nationalization, yeah. high taxes, strong unions, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, there's a bit of a thing of people going like, what we have now is bad capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we need to go back to good capitalism. So you said a moment ago, like obviously capitalism was the worst aspects of it were more intense. They're intensified by financialization and they were more intense before the post-war consensus. Yeah. But could you just explain why like maybe a return to the post-war consensus is not enough? Like maybe digging up Clem Attlee isn't the solution. <laughs> <laughs> like robo <Clem>. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's a really, really really good question i think there are two reasons why there are two kind of ways to respond to this right mm. the first way is to look at the inherent contradictions associated with social democracy in the post-war consensus so to basically say that the system that we had during the post-war period which mm -hmm. was based on as you said kind of much greater role for the state in the economy the state playing a role as a mediator between bosses and workers and you know the expansion of the welfare state etc mm -hmm. in many ways that was a process of adaption mm -hmm. to the uh, the horrors that have been created by the extremely free market laissez-faire system that we had before the second world war that collapsed in the great depression and obviously created led to fascism and, and, you know, the most horrific, one of the most horrific conflicts that we've ever seen. The process of adaption that took place after that gave rise to, in the US, the UK and mm. other parts of the rich world, mm -hmm. a less extractive, nicer, cuddlier form of capitalism, <laughs> right? Cuddly capitalism. You have nasty capitalism and yeah. cuddly capitalism. <laughs> but it was still capitalism. It was still a mm. system uh, based on the private ownership of resources and their mm. and production for profit. Therefore, you know, as Marx says, any capitalist system has its own contradictions, its own kind of problems that stop it from working properly after a, a period of time. And that had its own contradictions because, it, you know, that system was ultimately based on the idea that it, it would be possible to strike a compromise mm -hmm. between people who work for a living and people who own the stuff mm -hmm. um, and that the state could play a role as that mediator. And this was kind of fine when things were going well. And not least because, you know, you had extraction from the rest of the world as part of, you know, the, the system of colonialism that still existed. But as you started to get globalization, meaning greater competition, mm -hmm. as you got, say, all the problems that took place in the 1970s, the breakdown of Bretton Woods, the kind of international monetary system, the oil price spike, etc. Those that conflict that mm -hmm. exists in all capitalist systems between the people who work for a living and the people who own the stuff became... Uh, more zero sum. Before that, you think there's enough to go around. We can decide who gets the gains from growth. We can split it equally between workers and bosses, whatever. It means workers get paid a little bit more. Um, bosses have to kind of be less exploitative. Mm -hmm. But when you get the oil price spike and a rising inflation, mm -hmm. bosses think, right, we need to cut costs to deal with this inflation problem. Workers also think we need more money to survive. Uh, so that it like that kind of conflict that exists under the surface of the social democratic model suddenly explodes. Mm -hmm. And then the state doesn't know what to do because the state doesn't know which side it should take, right? Mm. And that's basically the political problem that you get in the 1970s. Um, and so, you know, whenever you get crises under systems of social democracy, they have to be resolved in favor of one class or the other, mm -hmm. right? And generally they'll be resolved in favor of capital. So in many ways, you know, that cuddly capitalism leads inevitably to nasty capitalism. Yeah. But the other thing to talk about is that, um, you know, you can't just change capitalism mm -hmm. based on what you think it should look like <laughs> what kind of capitalism you have 
is determined by the balance of power between different classes. Uh, so after the war, the balance of power between people who work for a living and people who own the stuff, so labor mm -hmm. and capital, tilted in favor of labor mm -hmm. because um, you know the state had expanded, the unions had become much more powerful, uh, capital was kind of hemmed in in a number of different ways as a result of the Second World War. So working people had more power. Mm -hmm. They also had, were able to finally vote properly and they had representation in the Labour Party and yeah. unions, etc. Um, and so that was a big factor in determining why we ended up getting the post-war consensus in the first place. In the same way, during the 1970s, capital started to claw that power back for a whole load of different reasons, not least because of the breakdown of that Bretton Woods system mm. uh, that included a lot of regulation over finance and people's ability to move their money around the world. Mm. And so that rebalancing led to the emergence of a new model. And, you know, today, I mean, basically the argument of my book is we're in a period of crisis, an extended mm -hmm. moment of crisis, where what happens next will be determined by the balance of power between labor and capital, between mm -hmm. people who live off work and people who live off wealth. It's really up to us to build a movement that will be able to take back power mm -hmm. from capital and institutionalize a new way of organizing the economy, a way of organizing the economy beyond capitalism altogether, hopefully. Yeah. The balance of power is it's more like viscerally in favour of capital now. But yeah. it was in the post-war era as yeah, well. Yeah, 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 so exactly. it's just yeah. it's more it's more kind of extreme mm. and it's the benefits of it aren't being shared. Because that's um the post-war consensus is based around the economics of this guy Keynes, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. He's he's not a, a socialist, he just thinks no. the state should have a role. Yeah. Um he's very much like, How do I save capitalism? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, There's a really great book on Keynes by on Keynesianism by Jeff mm, Mann okay. called In the Long Run We're All Dead, which is yeah. basically like Keynes's <laughs> mission. Yeah, yeah, literally, this is his quote. Keynes's mission is to save capitalism from itself. Right. Uh, which is kind of the sort of thing that you see amongst like the enlightened yeah. capitalists today, right? They're like they love Piketty. Yeah. They're like, yeah, you know tax us a little bit more if it will make the system more stable mm. but ultimately it doesn't threaten the fundamental basis of their power interesting mm. if you were evil capitalist grace if you were like transformed and had like a little evil mustache and a monocle, in a monocle, yeah. monocle, <laughs> and, monocle a and an eye patch go oh, all in yes. um, monocle eye patch hold it with like a monocle held with string <laughs> uh, what would be like do you think capitalism can save us because what it seems to be doing is the same thing it did as you said in yeah. uh, the 30s which is basically going okay this isn't working let's do fascism now yeah. you know is there like a liberal capitalist solution to maintain this system I mean, if I was an evil capitalist today, yeah. then it's like you have to be a very particular component of capital not to be concerned about the rise mm. of fascism. Because yes, I mean, yeah. fascism is a response to, yeah. uh, in many ways, a response to the crisis moment in which we find ourselves that benefits the right over the left. Mm. But it still involves quite a lot of constraints on capital because, you mm. know, you're, ref you're returning to often a kind of a protectionist nationalism that is not only about keeping out migrants, it's also about, also about trade wars, mm -hmm. etc., which can harm capital. It's all often associated with the kind of populist rhetoric that you'd find on the left, but without mm -hmm. any substance behind it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, that is that should be concerning for some mm. sections of capital. For mm. others, not so much. You know, like the most extractive uh, financiers can yeah. basically make money out of anything. And in many ways, crisis kind of benefits them because it allows them to, to make money out of the chaos. But, you know, for most of capital, that's a concerning development. Not nearly, obviously, as concerning as the rise of socialism. Mm. So obviously, if they had to pick, they would choose fascism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, clearly. What you're starting to see at the moment is obviously they all want the nice liberal mm. consensus of mm -hmm. before the financial crisis back, right? They all want yeah, to go yeah. back to 2006. So they're all throwing their weight behind consensus. Macron. Yeah, exactly. Macron yeah, style yeah. politics. And some of them are smart enough to know that that's only going to work if it's accompanied by 
giveaways, mm-hmm. right? If it's accompanied by higher levels of taxes, a bit more regulation and some giveaways to people with the electoral power to be able to shape what happens to the system. So if I was like a, a, a capitalist now, and if I had, a, you know, one with influence, mm. I would basically be throwing my weight behind some sort of non-socialist but left-sounding mm-hmm. uh, agenda um, that was basically like, yeah, you know, we need to like enforce competition law better. Mm-hmm. We need to properly tax the rich. We need to invest more in infrastructure, yeah. all this sort of stuff. You know, we need to have some sort of very limited Green New Deal, right? Like kind of yeah. take the phrase, but but strip out all the good stuff. That would kick the can down the road potentially yeah. for five, 10 years, mm-hmm. but it's not going to fix any of the problems. The smart thing to do would have been to do that immediately after the financial crisis, right? right? Yeah. But it's hard to see now how um, how that kind of politics is ever really going to come back. In the book, uh, which everyone should read, by the way, uh, because it's Thanks. it's about, <laughs> is it going to be the length of like 50 podcasts? Um, and Grace can't explain everything in this episode. <laughs> but you go through how financialization affects like the firm, the household and the yeah. state, right? Um, and there's a nice... Um, thing that kind of ties those three together, which is a phrase you use called like privatized Keynesianism. Yeah. So I, I found that really interesting because I often have trouble with the word neoliberalism. I don't like the weird parts of the commentariat who yeah, like somehow have, exist. Yeah. yeah, they have like <laughs> politics degrees, but somehow never encountered the word <laughs> neoliberal. Oh, I don't know what it means. First page of Google, mate. Um, and like, obviously, you know, basically it means kind of market fundamentalism. Yeah. But the interesting thing about neoliberalism, obviously, is that in bringing it about, the state did loads of stuff. Yes. Well, even, you know, like basic stuff now, like a help to buy schemes that yeah. look like they're kind of um, helping people, but actually it's just a subsidy to financial yeah, yeah, yeah. speculation of the housing market. Um, so Keynes obviously thought, that it's from my understanding, again, please just slam me if I'm wrong. It's like, you you have to think about demand and you need, workers yes. need to have money to spend. Otherwise, who's going to buy the stuff? And that's really important for how capitalism works. So when you go full neoliberalism with Thatcher and everything in the 80s, the problem is if you've got loads of unemployed people and they've got no money, no one's going to buy anything. So you have to, uh, you have demand has to come from somewhere if you're slashing welfare and it's everything. So both in terms of the household and in terms of business, what does uh, like privatized Keynesianism mean? What do you mean? Yeah, by that? so I mean, you know, Keynesianism is basically the idea of, as you said, demand management, yeah. right? So when uh, Keynes's idea of the business cycle was that it was driven by people's expectations. Mm. So when people were really confident, businesses mm. would invest loads, people would kind of buy more, you mm. know, everything goes up. But when people start to get less confident, whether that's just as a result of the fact that things have been going well for a while or because something changes, whatever, uh, then businesses restrict investment, people stop spending as much mm-hmm. and you get a kind of a fall in demand. Mm-hmm. And his idea was basically that it's the government's role to step in mm. and mute the ups and downs of the business cycle. So when people are investing too much, raise taxes, reduce spending, right, raise interest rates mm. um, and constrain that. And when they weren't spending enough, expand government spending, which, you know, stimulates demand for businesses. Mm. Like if you are building a road, then you are going to need private businesses to do that, which will increase their profits, some of which will go to workers, mm. et cetera, et cetera. It goes all the way down the economy through the multiplier. That was kind of Keynes's innovation. Mm. That really is what underpinned the post-war consensus. The idea of privatized Keynesianism is that rather than allowing that spending to be undertaken by the government itself, right? Which allows the state to expand, potentially leads to higher taxes, Mm -hmm. um, also kind of undercuts the discipline Mm -hmm. imposed on workers 
based on the fact that if they lose their job, they'll die, right? If you've <laughs> yeah. got a welfare state, yeah, yeah. then, you know, that's less of a problem. Th- rather than doing that, you encourage people to take out huge amounts of debt, mm-hmm. basically to boost demand. Mm-hmm. You encourage people to take out personal debt, so particularly mortgage debt, um, but also kind of general unsecured uh, credit card debt. And you also encourage businesses to undertake investment through debt. The idea being that that allows them to people to spend, businesses to invest more than they would had if they had to rely just on their earnings. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean that's kind of the basis of the financialization fix. But obviously, it contains the seeds of its own destruction because mm-hmm. it means because uh, basically a lot of that debt was being taken out and not used productively. So often businesses were taking out tons of debt and rather than say building a new factory, they would buy up another company or just (laughs) dish out loads of money to shareholders, Mm -hmm. right? And it's the same thing with households. I mean, obviously a lot of that money went into housing, but it went into housing on the basis that house prices would continue to go up indefinitely. Mm -hmm. And obviously they didn't. Prioritized Keynesianism Mm -hmm. um, really underpins the the kind of massive boom that we yeah. had between the kind of end of the 80s and 2008, but also the financial crisis itself. Mm. Nice. Okay, I'm going to put, I'm going to put my Tory top hat on nice. and, and my monocle and my moustache, right? Um, but Grace, isn't financialization great? Workers shouldn't be concerned with the super rich as long as the economy grows because a rising tide raises all ships. Global absolute poverty has fallen from 52% to 21 in the 1980s to 21% uh, now. And that's happened in the era of financialization. What say you to this? Right. So to the second point about global poverty, obviously the vast amount of this happens in China, Mm -hmm. right? People say, you know, China became capitalist and that's why we've had a fall (laughs) in, in poverty. The idea that the Chinese state which which is based on mass state ownership of basically the entire financial system, but also a huge amount of uh, of industry combined with capital controls, credit mm. controls, mass state control, surveillance, whatever, <laughs> is free market capitalism, mm. is utterly absurd. China was able to do this basically by flouting all of the rules mm-hmm. that were that would have been imposed on it had it been any other country, i.e. you have to open up your markets to international capital. You're not allowed to have exchange controls. You're not allowed to have credit controls. You have to start privatizing things, right? The received wisdom that international institutions like the World Bank and the IMF pushed on countries all around the world in the 1980s. China was just like, no, we're not doing that and took its own model, mm-hmm. which did have elements of market competition in there. But in many ways, it was kind of more similar to that post-war consensus model, but obviously with an authoritarian state, right? Mm. That has a huge amount more control over the economy. The idea that that's free market capitalism is bizarre. The kind of model, the capitalist development mm-hmm. um, of the kind pushed by big international institutions, like which obeyed the policies that capitalists would want them to obey, mm-hmm. would be like African economies that have been basically screwed over consistently over the last, like ever since independence, because Mm -hmm. they have been forced to open up their markets to international capital, like sell commodities on international markets that have never allowed them to kind of industrialize, even though they're sold this idea that one day they'll be able to modernize. Um, So China got to where it got to Mm -hmm. by protecting itself Mm -hmm. from the ravages of free market neoliberal capitalism. China has a form of, state capitalism which is contrary to which may you know end up being the next model that we see as china becomes the most the most powerful um state in the international system which you know it will do at some point over the next several decades so yeah there's that (laughs) the the other thing 
which was what, what you said at the beginning, which was like financialization is good because a rising, rising tide lifts all boats, etc. Yeah, like I mean, G- there's GDP growth. Yeah. Does, but there, I, some uh, article keeps getting thrown around, which is like growth is good for the poor. And then there's that other one, which is growth is still good for the poor. Where yeah, they just yeah, did yeah, this, yeah. That's what I'm referencing. Okay, so, oh, so many things. Firstly, <laughs> firstly climate breakdown. Yeah. We'll just put that to one side because I don't even need to go into that. Like that's capitalism for you. Yeah. The idea that there is an endless amount that can be extracted from both humanity and nature is the mm-hmm. basis of capitalism. But this, more importantly, perhaps, is this idea of inequality, right? That inequality yep. doesn't matter because the rising tide of all votes, da, 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 da. There are two reasons that this doesn't work. Firstly, obviously, when uh, people aren't being paid enough, they can't produce the things that the capitalists are selling, mm-hmm. et cetera. You get the classic Keynesian problem of demand. But more importantly, when you have very high levels of inequality, as in lots of money being sucked up to the top, it tends to lead to overproduction, mm-hmm. overinvestment, bubbles and financial crises. Look at like Bitcoin, right? <laughs> lots of rich people being like, I need to throw my money at something because I desperately need to generate returns. Mm. And I have all this massive pot of money. What do I do with it? So they jump on the next bandwagon, whether that's like tulips, housing, <laughs> collateralized debt obligations, Bitcoin, or like Facebook stocks, right? Yeah. It, it creates financial instability, especially when accompanied by like rising debt levels, mm. which it generally is. So yeah, I mean... No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also the one that stands out to me is like Uber. Like it's yeah. everywhere and it's worth loads of money, but it still hasn't made a profit. Yeah. It's like 29, it's been going for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what's, what's happening there? <laughs> um, it's fascinating. It part, I mean, there is obviously a bubble in technology stocks at the moment. Yeah. And that's, that's at least partly because we've had quantitative easing. So we've had the government, cre- governments all around the world create lots of money which has ended up in the financial system and often has been, you know, has gone into equity markets. Mm. So equity markets are just like, if you look at the market capitalization to GDP ratio, so how much money is in equity markets versus the size of the economy, mm-hmm. it's huge, mm-hmm. like ridiculous, bigger than before the financial crisis. Wow. Um, yeah. But a lot of that is to do with QE. So it's it's difficult to really get good information about yeah. whether or not this is a, a really big bubble that's going to collapse or whether this is just a kind of result of government policy and it will just carry on for as long as QE carries on. And QE is just uh, the government putting money into the economy to... It's basically the government, the central bank creating yeah. money and using that money to buy up government debt. And the government debt is owned by private investors. So the money goes to the investors mm. and the investors have to use their money in the best way to maximize their risk adjusted returns. Okay. So they take the money that they used to have invested in bonds and they have to invest it somewhere else. So, and a lot of that money has gone into equities. So shares, mm. which has obviously pushed up share prices, but it's also gone into property, uh, which has pushed up big reason oh, no. that we've had high property prices. Yeah. <laughs> so the end of your book, you propose numerous solutions to this and it's not, just a return to cuddly capitalism, as you say. Some of these are, are quite radical things that you could plausibly imagine one of the political parties in this country <laughs> uh, implementing in the near future. Like They seem simultaneously really realistic and quite radical. Um, so let's go through some of these because um, I think people will be interested to hear them. So first of all, um, like debt forgiveness. Yeah. What, what is that and how could that help people? Yeah, so really important. So obviously we have at the moment high, relatively high levels of, of private household debt. Some of it is is not particularly high interest because it's mortgage debt. Student debt. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of student debt. Some of it is very high interest credit card mm. lending or payday lending or yep. whatever. And will become unsustainable as the economy turns, which it will at some point mm. in the next couple of years because earnings 
which haven't increased for the last 10 years will potentially start to decline again. And the the debt that has been taken out becomes unsustainable. It also just represents a continuous drain on household incomes for the foreseeable future until that's paid off. Mm. And often, you know, it will never be paid off because yeah. the debt itself has already been paid off. And now you're paying, continuously paying interest on interest on interest on interest. That is a really big problem. The other thing is obviously mortgage lending. We've got now banks issuing very large mortgages, mm. sometimes worth 100% of the value of the property. Mm. So if property prices start to fall, that then becomes a problem. So I've basically argued that unsustainable debt, mm. so debt where you know, you've know you repaid the principal, the initial amount you borrowed and in the, like 100, 200, 300 times yeah. that uh, should be written off because mm. obviously you know it's unsustainable, it's silly, it's unfair. Uh, and debt that has been taken out at very high interest rates and it's becoming unsustainable should be refinanced. Mm. Uh, so you should be able to, if you've got a really big stock of debt, you should be able to go to what I argue for, which is the, a public bank. I argue for the creation of a public banking system and say, I would like to refinance this debt at low interest rates, right? Mm. And there, then it becomes much easier to kind of repay. And the balance between refinancing and just write-offs will have to be determined by the level of problem debt, which is quite high, but also the state of the economy. Because if we're in a recession, mm. there's more lee room to basically write off more debt because mm. it is less likely to be inflationary, basically. Because you need to kind of expand demand. So giving people more spending power is good. Another thing is you talk about, um, you're not saying like abolish retail banking, but this idea of retail banking that invests in like socially desirable projects. What do you mean by that? So yeah, I, I argue for... Uh, Retail and commercial banking, so mm. lending to people and small businesses mm -hmm. done by a public banking system, basically, mm -hmm. um, which would be able to, yeah, offer, you know, standard accounts, standard services that you would mm -hmm. get from retail bank, be able to do that refinancing for problem debt, and also direct lending to community organizations, to co-ops, whatever, um, like socially desirable activities that need lending um, mm -hmm. to expand, which is a real problem, especially for things like co-ops. Yeah. And it's really, really difficult to access funding. We need a public banking system to get that sort of stuff on the, off the ground. And generally to, yeah, to direct lending into, let's say, green investment, mm. green energy, whatever, into parts of the country that don't receive as much lending because we've got a very un regionally unbalanced economy. And to, you know, have like community banks to support mm. things like community wealth building as well. Mm. Uh, there's one like zeitgeisty economic solution that you don't seem to advocate. And I'm really interested to hear why. The universal basic income grace. Ah, why, yeah. why isn't it in the the, uh, the package? I advocate a whole load of things to decommodify the means of subsistence. So basically wow. take the stuff that we need to survive and put it outside of the market mechanism. So either yeah. give it for free or a massive subsidy mm. alongside a load of other things to kind of increase wages and stuff. The reason that I advocate having things for free rather mm. than giving people money is just that I think it is based on a very different kind of psychology, like giving people money mm. and then saying, go out and spend this however you want. If you lose it, screw it up, whatever, <laughs> that's your fault, is very different to saying we collectively own our infrastructure, our rail railways, our utilities, our housing, mm. and those are yours to use for free because they belong to you as a member of this society. Mm -hmm. um, we live in a society. <laughs> 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 we live in a society, so we should have free stuff, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very different. It's a very different psychology to being yeah. like, right, I've got money for free from the state. Mm. I'm going to go out and spend that. Then it is being just like, yeah, well, obviously I'm going to jump on the train and it's free because like I own it. Yeah. Yeah. It's everyone's. Mm. 
given the impending ecological apocalypse that's going to uh, vaporize us all, do we not have to abandon the idea of infinite economic growth on a finite planet? Yeah, I mean, like, I think basically we need to get rid of GDP growth, mm. right? Um, I don't think we need to get rid of the idea because, I mean, there are so many different things going on with this question, right? I mean, on the one hand, there's like growth. Mm. What is that? <laughs> currently, currently, it's GDP growth. Yeah. GDP is terrible. We should mm -hmm. obviously not be really trying even to measure GDP. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also this idea of like progress itself. Mm. There, there are kind of some kind of Malthusian overtones sometimes when this question is asked, which is like, we have too much stuff. We need to <laughs> stop having as much stuff and get used to the idea that, you know, basically humanity has, has gotten to the, the peak now mm -hmm. and we can just kind of stop growing stop progressing mm -hmm. um, which is obviously ridiculous and yeah. you know even if it wasn't ridiculous no one's going to support it so yeah. whatever uh, I think we can have an idea of progress and of development that does that isn't based on GDP growth and that accounts for the human impact on the environment China a while ago tried to do a measure of GDP growth that mm. discounted for environmental impact and they didn't publish it because they were just like this is really bad. We're like mm. growing negatively based on this. Oh, no. So yeah, I mean, even just stuff like that would yeah. be, would be like a big thing. And then you wouldn't be measuring just the expansion of the economy. You mm. would be like, right, the expansion of the economy, the economy subject to mm. the limits in the environment, subject to human well-being, inequality, et cetera. Yeah. And it's not, it's not just the stuff. It's like the stuff that has minerals in it mined by like yeah. a child slave exactly. or something, which, yeah. Okay. Many of your suggestions go along the lines of the expansion of the role of the state mm. and people might be uh, wary of that. I know mm. we discussed that we're not talking about a return to the cuddly capitalism or the Keynesianism or whatever, but uh, how would your proposals empower ordinary people? This is uh, like the most important part of the book, right? Because I mean, I advocate like the state doing stuff to limit the power of capital and to promote the power of working people. But that is not based on the idea of like returning to state capitalism and having the state nationalize things and mm -hmm. one department control everything. Mm -hmm. It's based on the idea. I mean, the whole basis of the idea of democratic socialism that I outline in the book is the expansion of the principles of political democracy into the realm of the economy alongside, you know, social ownership. So when you are nationalizing industries, you need to come up with a mechanism to make sure that they're being democratically run, right? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, we own it. I've got a good report about how you would do this. Um, the same with, you know, the investment strategies. When, you know, when I talk about the National Investment Bank, People's Asset Manager, et cetera, they all have to be democratically governed with like a majority of directly elected representatives on the board accompanied by worker representatives, union representatives, you know, et cetera. Alongside that, I talk about the importance of having different models of ownership. Mm -hmm. So nationalization being appropriate for some things, particularly big infrastructure and stuff that's going to be important for the Green New Deal. But longer term, looking at worker ownership, cooperative ownership, things like community wealth building, just completely reimagining the way the state works is going to be really important because we need to introduce the logic of democracy much more into local government, into economic policy making, the central bank, like everything, obviously getting rid of the House of Lords, mm. that sort of stuff. So, I mean, if anything, you know, the, the ideas behind this are an attempt to expand our understanding of democracy and democratic participation and, yeah, kind of give people back a sense of, of power over their lives, which has been progressively taken away from them as more things have been placed outside of the realm of democratic accountability. So don't just nationalise Greg's Democratize, democratize Greg. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <I'm in. laughs> um, so what could people do to help bring this about? 
we need to get organizing. Mm -hmm. This is the only way that any of this stuff is going to happen, right? And the book is articulated. It's basically, it's not like, here's a bunch of things that politicians should do. Mm -hmm. It's, here's a set of demands mm -hmm. that we should be debating, discussing, and ultimately trying to champion. We need to do that by organizing in our workplaces. So joining unions politically. So, you know, joining a political party, <laughs> joining, you know, momentum, whatever. And also getting involved in, in wider social movements, mm -hmm. right? Uh, whether that's community organizing, whether it's, uh, you know, environmental activism, like whatever, any collective activity that allows you to resist the logic of capitalism in one way or another, mm -hmm. and also expands our understanding of ourselves and our, our collectivity beyond, you know, a, a very individualistic psychology that's been inculcated by the particular kind of capitalism that we have makes mm -hmm. us conscious of our power as a group. Mm -hmm. Join a union, join the Labour Party, join whatever, and yeah, get organising. Yeah. Yeah. So I go and put um, go and put Das Kapital in the self-help section of bookshops. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yes. <laughs> Stealing all the copies of the sun and like throwing them in the, in the, in the like sea. Throwing the sun into the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right wicked I think that's a good place to end cool thank you very much for coming thank on. you so much for having me it's been great Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans our title theme was created by Ella Jean Grace Blakely's book Stolen How to Save the World from Financialization is out now with Repeater Books if you enjoy Mandatory Redistribution Party please subscribe share maybe leave us a review and one day we can be floated on the stock market, purchased by some capitalist vultures and uh, assets stripped. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.